Thank you for downloading this resource from the International Christian Medical and Dental Association. To find out more, go to www.icmda.net slash resources. The views expressed in this resource do not necessarily reflect those of ICMDA. Scotland is that Christian thinking in this area has been very strongly affected by a Greek uh, philosophical view, which, uh, which is called Neoplatonism, which really has very little to do with Christian, with biblical faith. But the whole idea that somewhere up in the, in the spiritual realm there is a spirit, a soul, which is eternal, and then this soul sometimes comes into the clay of the body at some point as the baby is developing in the womb, and then that carries on until the moment of death when the soul goes back to God. That whole idea is not biblical, that is, that is Neoplatonism, that is, that is uh, an idea invented by Plato and by Greek philosophers. But it was adopted, Christians have often adopted that and have tried to force Christian thinking into that mould. But actually, I think most biblical theologians these days accept that really that is not a helpful way of, of thinking about it. Um, in terms of the, the principles, I think this is a fundamental principle of um, biblical ethics that the way we treat one another, the morality of, of humanity, of human ethics, comes from the way we are made. So in ethics, in, in, in Christian thinking, the reason that we treat one another in, in, in particular way comes from the way we're made. And that, so trying to understand the biblical principles of how we're made, of who we are, and of who the developing human is, will help us then in terms of how we should treat one another. So human beings are not self-explanatory, they don't explain themselves. And this is the big problem with modern science, with, with what the philosophers call naturalism. Because the theory behind that is that if only we investigate more about humanity by using DNA analysis, by using magnetic resonance imaging of a functioning brain, by looking at sociology and cultural anthropology, all of this will help us ultimately we'll work out what it means to be human. As we've heard, that human beings are made in God's image. They are reflections of another reality. They're specifically designed to reflect another reality. And unless you understand that, you're never going to be able to understand what it means <coughs> to be a human. A simple analogy, human beings are somewhere like a map. They're a map that reflects another, another kind of reality. So our meaning, who we are, comes from outside ourselves. It actually comes from the character of God himself. So here is the mystery of, of um, human development. And of course, when the biblical writers were writing, they had no concept of what was going on uh, in the womb. All they knew was that 
the man and the wife had sex and nine months later out popped the baby and, and occasionally there were miscarriages and occasionally there were accidents and so on but, but really what was happening in the womb is a mystery of God's uh, creation and interestingly in Psalm 139 the language which is used is the way that God weaves together the, the baby in darkness in waters is actually deliberately echoing, I believe, um, Genesis 1. It's the way in which the world is formed. What is going on in the womb is a microcosm of what actually happens in the whole of creation. There is this microcosm, this little repeat of the creation, the creation mystery. But of course, with our technology, we can now see into the, the process and we know a great deal of what was hidden the biblical writers. And so here is the one cell embryo. Uh, you can see some of the sperm that have failed to penetrate through, and, it, and one sperm has penetrated through, and this is just at the fusing of the two pronuclei in the centre. So the, the father, DNA from the father, and the DNA from the mother are just about to fuse. And then, as we know from our embryology textbooks we go through to the blastocyst by day five to day six interestingly in uh, IVF clinics particularly in the states which has become very commercialized and so on you can actually watch your embryo they have a camera so it's beaming up to you so back at home you can see your embryos on, on the web watching them growing and developing and dividing and so on so interesting again how because those particular embryos are desperately wanted, are desperately needed, then suddenly they are regarded as incredibly precious and incredibly significant. Although in other settings, status embryos are too pregnant. Interestingly, it's not until implantation that the endocrine signal, the signal to the mother that she is pregnant. Um, so before that point, it's almost as though the embryo is beneath the horizon of awareness. It isn't. Nobody except God knows that it's there, unless you haven't had an electron microscope. And um, when those embryos are analysed, it turns out, that it's, it's estimated, uh, the different estimates, that something like 50% of all embryos that are created during normal uh, intercourse are, uh, are lost. But when you analyse those embryos, it turns out that nearly all of them have very profound chromosomal abnormalities. They have Androidy. Um Many of them, for instance, have 96 chromosomes or 92 chromosomes instead of 46. So they have bizarre chromosomal anomalies which are incompatible with life. Um, and precisely why that is is something that the embryologists don't understand. That seems to be um, a feature particularly <coughs> of, of human reproduction, which um, has a, seems to be a high incidence of, and this is now a big growth industry in the UK and uh, other European countries. So, there isn't time to build out a, a more detailed understanding of, and, and time to, to give a, a plug. In my book, Matters of Life and Death, which is on the bookstore, I do go, there's a chapter called When is a Person, and which really goes through in more detail the, the, the basic uh, argument and positions I want to put forward. But Psalm 139 is a wonderful psalm just as a, for a devotional. If you want to go on a retreat, 
take Psalm 139 and use it as your source of meditation. But just to draw out three principles, the psalmist is reflecting on his own past. He actually starts with this sense of claustrophobia. He, he's uh, at another medical conference some, some years ago, and afterwards an, an older lady doctor came to talk to me, and she had tears in her eyes. She said that she then poured out her family history, which was a terrible history. How she was conceived through rape. She was always made plain that she was unwanted as a child. She was abused physically, and I think sexually as well as a child. And then, at the age of 18, she left home, she went to university, and she discovered Christ, and she became a Christian, and her whole life changed. And she said, I've always thought, traced, the entry of God into my life when I was 18. And now, for the first time, I've realized that actually it was there, where it says, God, you know me. In biblical, that language is very particular meaning, and interestingly, it's exactly the same word as is used about the relationship between a man and a woman. It's also used in other places about the fact that God knows his people, and it's covenant language. It's language of a covenant commitment. So when the psalmist says, God, you knew me, you saw me, he's not just saying, you know, that because God sees everything, he can also see what's in the womb. No, it's saying that you were committed to the there. So the emphasis is on the continuity between the unborn child and the, and the subsequent. And there are many other examples in Scripture. Perhaps for me, the most striking occurs in Luke's Gospel. And I've often thought, why did Luke choose this little incident? You know, imagine Dr. Luke, he's, he's gone back to Palestine, he's interviewed all these people, he's interviewed Mary, John the Baptist, and there's the unborn Jesus, and the unborn John the Baptist is leaping for joy at the presence of Jesus in exactly the same way that the lame man is going to leap for joy. Far more amazing, far more wonderful things planned for you than you have read. You have not yet become a person. That God wants you to do. It's not until the new age, the new heaven, the new earth, that we will fully become these amazing, wonderful beings that God wants us to be. So, what is true of the embryo is true of us too. We're all trapped between the already and the not yet, and we have to hold these two together. We're in the process of becoming what we already are. And then the other principle is that we have to hold together the physical and the immaterial, so that on the one hand, it is absolutely true that an embryo is nothing but a cell. It is simply a piece of cellular material. It has a bilateral membrane, it has cytoplasm, it has a nucleus, it has mitochondria. It is exactly the same as any other nucleated cell in the body. And so the embryologist, you know, the, the secular embryologist says, What's all the big fuss about? It's a cell. Get with it. Why are you so excited? And, and why do you say you're all this special moral hoo-ha about it's just a cell? But at the same time that, the, that it is purely physical, God is calling into existence a unique human being made in his image with a destiny a wonderful and unique person with a, with a future destiny. And you say to me, how can both of those things be true 
at the same time as this, and I think you, I haven't a clue. I don't know how those two things can hold true. But what I know is they are both true, and we have to hold them both together. And if you think about it, that is a common thing we find in, in Christian theology. The Lord Jesus was just a man, a physical man with a body like mine, made out of the same kind of stuff, and at the same time, he was God in time. He was the upholder of the universe. He was the one by who every atom was held in existence. How can that be true? I don't know, but it is true. The Bible is just a book. It's just some words written by some elderly men, long dead. And at the same time, it is the living word of God. How can those two things be true? Answer, I don't know, but they're both true and we hold them together. And so, in the same way, the being in the womb is just a physical being, but at the same time, something wonderful, something amazing, something unique is coming to pass. And we hold, we hold those together. But we can't expect to be able to use an electron microscope to look at the embryo and say, this is when the person starts. So we zoom in and we say, 16 cells, no, there's the person, but oh, hang on a minute, yeah, up to I think we can just see it coming in and reaching out to them with love, with by speech, by communication, by covenant love. That's how you discover a person. And it's in the same way, you can't discover whether there is a person there as this embryo develops with an electron microscope. You discover persons only by reaching out to them, by interacting, by love, by finding the other humanity. Somebody, theologian, gave an illustration of this idea I found quite helpful. He said that in one of the Bergman films, you know, they have these very arty films, and I, I haven't found which film it is, so if anybody an expert on Bergman, I would be interested. But apparently there is a shot which shows a silhouette of somebody looking out to sea, sitting on a rock, looking out to sea. And the hero of the film comes along and puts a hand on this person's shoulder. And the silhouette topples forward into the sea, the camera spins round and you realise it's a corpse that's just been propped up. It will turn out that the embryo is, is, is like it's a corpse, is not, it, there, there isn't a person there, but it's an incompatible device at the time. But, so, but nonetheless, our human response is to reach out in the desire that the humanity of the other we can come back to that maybe and discuss it further if you'd like. But just to put a number of arguments as to why the position I've come to is that we should treat even all the way down to embryonic life as being somehow special and as being protected. I, I recognise that other Christian people have come to different positions and as I said at the beginning, I have huge humility about the fact that we can never know for certain uh, about the origin of life. But I'll just give you some reason why I think we should uh, treat even the embryonic 
stage with, with uh, protection. And that is if you think of yourself, this is, if this was you, and you imagine your own history, this is you, not that's one over here. You wouldn't be you. So to that extent, you, this is you, this is the person you are. When I was discussing this earlier with somebody else, they made the point, but why don't I go back further to the sperm and the egg? But I would argue there's a difference, that once you go back to the sperm and the egg, that isn't you. That is the things of which you are made, but that's not actually you. And the difference is that, that this being, all the way back to the single cell, has a mummy and a daddy. It has, it has a father and a mother. It is already within the human family. But that isn't true of either the sperm and the egg. The sperm and the egg is not a being that has a father and a mother. It is, it is simply a special cell. Its own lineage, all the way back to our lineage. And well, what point does that lineage to Adam and Eve start answer the first question? It's at that point that this being also can be traced back to Adam and Eve. It's at that point that you are what the Bible says, as in Adam, all die. That's that's our our lineage. That's our descendants. And this being is also in Adam, this invisible cell. But to me, I think the strongest argument is one from uncertainty. And that is, when we are uncertain about certain incredibly significant and vital points, the question is, what is now about to be destroyed? It's all being wired up with dynamite, and I have the plunger here, and I'm just about to hit the plunger, and I just, before I hit the plunger, I say to my mate, you are sure that we got everybody out of there, aren't you? And he says, yeah, I think so. <laughs> what is the Christian response? Do you hit the plunger or do you not? And it seems to me you don't. In fact, you don't hit that plunger unless you are sure as far as you humanly possibly can be that there is no person's life better. And if there had been an abortionist in Galilee as there was, and if Mary, as a single mother, had gone to the abortionist, as many single mothers did, then Jesus of Nazareth would not have come into existence. By God's providence, the major thing about Mary is that she said yes to God. That's why she is the unique combination, because I was a unique person. The universe has never seen anybody quite like me, thank goodness. <laughs> and Celia was a unique lady. The universe has never seen anyone like Celia. And so the answer had to be somewhere else. So the whole idea that the soul was somewhere out in, that it enters into the world and then it goes back to God, that whole idea you don't find in scripture. I think, I think in scripture it is, it is much more this physical and the immaterial are locked together. And what, what the Bible tells us is that we shouldn't draw them apart. We shouldn't split them. We shouldn't try and say, oh, that's the spirit. So that when Jesus is given, oh, that bit was when he was God, and that bit when he's just being a man. No, it isn't that. God wasn't made of two halves. Jesus wasn't made of two halves. That bit was even, that bit was God. No, they were both and they were together. The idea that what I liked in this one, this this was more, I suppose, the Christian version of it, was that, uh, you know, that God was actually involved in 
creation of every human being. So like that, you know, his into every angle. So this is actually my question. You know, it's always intriguing. Is is this would that be you know, is that how we could look at this? You know, that God would always be there in a special moment. If then before I know you can't before it could just be a place of self as it was and afterwards you got you know, God has actually added something to it. So did everybody hear that? So the idea is that if the if God, it's certainly possible, and I think other people have said that. I personally, I'm not sure I can accept that in that sense because you know often it people ask the question, when does human life begin? But I think that's the wrong question because. It's absolutely plain that from the moment of fertilization that the infant is living. And it's living because the mother is living and the father is living. And why is the mother living? Well, because their mother was living. And so the chain of life actually extends all the way back to Adam and Eve. So, so that original miracle of breathing pneuma into Adam, because Adam was the, I mean, they were the father and mother of the whole of mankind, it seems to me the breath of life, I would put it, is the breath of life is in, in humanity. Uh, so the pneuma is already there, but rather than you start with clay, and then something comes, comes from above. But, but I, that, that would be just my... I think some Christians certainly have seen that, the idea that the breath can have at some point. It reflects uh, the Hebrew view, which was of, which comes from Genesis 2, of, the, of God breathing into <coughs> the, the body and then it, it coming back. In the full revelation that we get through Christ, and then in the New Testament, what we see is actually that there is a further plan that God's plan for us because in the resurrection of Christ you see what happens is that Jesus just doesn't die and his spirit returns to God and that then becomes the, the human hope that's of course what the people who deny the resurrection of, of Jesus say they just say well of course it's a spiritual thing that the spirit returns to God but of course if that was simply a description of death then death hasn't been defeated. All you, all you would be saying is that Jesus died like everybody else and be a very other human being and the spirit went back to God. That's just what human beings do. Jesus is just the same as everybody else. But the whole message of the New Testament is precisely that. That Jesus wasn't the same as every other human being. He defeated death. And he really, what what the New Testament teaches is, is a temporary separation. So there is at death. We, we are temporarily separated. And it talks about we, we, we go to be with Christ, but we fall asleep. There are various other... But that is a temporary stage to the final stage. The final stage of the new heaven and the new earth. Far from us going to God, to be with God, something far more amazing happens because the heavenly Jerusalem descends from heaven to the earth. God comes here to be part of this physical 
stages in the process. The first stage is that we have to get our own thinking clear because if our own thinking is not clear, we're never going to be able to communicate in a clear way. So the first stage is to get our own thinking clear. The second stage then is to say, how on earth can I communicate in hospitals, in lives, in families, in relationships? And um, where we have been very bad as Christians is, is just Getting that evidence. Now, as researchers, we're told human beings have a common ancestor in the Middle East, Africa, yeah. 150, 100, 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you have a reference for 